this uh, series that we've had, um, am, am I audible? Good. All right. This series that we've had has been a wonderful introduction, I think, to these uh, a great, uh, uh, just a few of the names of the, the uh, Catholic literary revival of the 20th century and uh, that was really fueled, as we've known, our first talk from uh, Joseph Pierce and on, fueled by converts. And uh, tonight we're going to be uh, learning about another one of them, one of, one of the greats who is uh, sadly neglected. Um, from uh, the first half of the 20th century, Ronald Knox. Ronald Knox was a priest. Uh, he was, uh, later in life, uh, the Pope made him a Monsignor, so he's usually called Monsignor Knox. Um, but uh, uh, this will be an opportunity, I don't know if you've, if you've heard of him, if you know his work, if you do, we'll, you'll learn more. If you don't know his work, you're going to discover him. It, you know, and I think about it as I was uh, looking over my notes and preparing for this talk and thinking about uh, um, what we've been doing over the past weeks has been introductions, really, to your new best friends. <laughs> they really are. I mean, lit the literary friendships are, are, are a great thing. And uh, I was thinking about this when Dale Alquist was here talking about some large guy from Beaconsfield. Um, <laughs> And, 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 and how, um, you know, friends often will introduce other friends. And, you know, and, and, and you learn your friend better by knowing your friend's friends. There's some aspect of that person that you didn't quite get because you're not, unless you're in the company of that friend and that friend's friends. And when, and when your friend, you know, in due course, as we all do, passes on, your friends that knew that friend bring that all back to life. I'm saying this badly, but you know, G.K. Chesterton was one of Ronald Knox's friends. And as Dale had, talked, had mentioned, it was by reading G.K. Chesterton that Ronald Knox, the young Ronald Knox, knew that he wanted to become a Catholic. And it was uh, Ronald Knox then, <laughs> Father Ronald Knox, who then helped bring G.K. Chesterton into being Catholic. Um, what goes around comes around. Well, G.K. Chesterton, you know, a very good friend of, of Ronald Knox. And uh, um, uh, sadly, G.K. Chesterton is, is detained this evening. Um, and so it will fall to me to make the introduction. You know, I was just thinking about with, with the introductions, you know, one person that we didn't cover with this because there's no way we could stretch him into being a convert, uh, Chesterton and Belloc's own friend, Hill, uh, Chesterton and Knox's friend, Hiller Belloc. The name like Hiller Belloc, you can imagine that he was probably of French origin. He was, it's by his father, but he grew up in England. And uh, um, Belloc was, well, Belloc's probably described best as the church militant. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, I would never have discovered Belloc, who has just been one of my best literary friends of my life. I would never have discovered Belloc if I'd never discovered Chesterton, if Chesterton hadn't introduced Belloc to me. And, uh, and I, I, um, he has given me, Belloc's writings have given me so much joy. I'm kind of, you know, all, all the previous speakers have seemed to have, you know, tables full of books, and I don't have any books to sell. <laughs> Yet. 
Because I do have I do have beer. No, I, I'm, but I, I have a I'm, I'm, I've done a, an annotated edition of uh, Hilaire Belloc's novel, The Four Men, and we're, it's been in work in progress for many years, and it's finally going to see the light of day. I'm told. Um, so maybe next year. Um, but uh, um, you know, I can't I can't I can't imagine how. Uh, impoverished my life would have been without Chesterton, without Belloc, you know, and, and it's like that with all friends. They, they sharpen each other's minds and, uh, and, and, and uh, add a heart where, where, you know, or intellect where either is lacking in one or the other. Um, so anyway, in introducing Ronald Knox, uh, you know, and again, in Chesterton's absence, that falls to me. Um, if you, you know, you've heard people say, if you like one writer, you know, oh, you'll, if, you're, if you're like so-and-so, you'll really like this. And, you know, Amazon.com's always got it wrong. Um, for some, it helps, you know, the fact that, you know, my, my, my daughter had ordered a bunch of things when uh, she was probably 10. And so for some reason, uh, Amazon still believes that I'm a big fan of the Saddle Club books. <laughs> But but uh, but you know you hear if you like one writer you're certain to like this other writer you know introduce you to him and 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 uh, often you know we're surprised that anyone would make this connection you know but then it's like that with friends too and we'll keep coming back to that friends and friends are different but they bring out different things in each other um, a wit once remarked you know again going back to Belloc and Chesterton the Belloc is just like Chesterton only more so um, but and we've all known Chestertonians those of us who've worked in, in, in you know and in, in dealt with Chestertonians over the years or have known Dale Alquist who is Chestertonians um, <laughs> that that uh, you know um, there are Chestertonians who've really never quite warmed Belloc I don't understand them I think they're wrong but uh, but there are there are. But I will go out on a limb and say that anyone who loves Chesterton will love Ronald Knox. You will. Um, you'll find in Ronald Knox a kindred spirit to Chesterton, a, a, a grace of, of writing, um, a, a charity, an intellect that's second to none. Um, and they also wrote very much similar sorts of things. You know, Chesterton had just a vast body of work covering all sorts of, of different uh, types of literature. And Knox did too. Um, some people discover Chesterton because of his detective stories. Well, Ronald Knox wrote detective stories until his bishop told him to stop. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, you know, many people come to Chesterton for his works of apologetics and for his witty and incisive explanations of the faith and, and, and his answers to the faith's critics and inquirers. And they will find the same in a great many of Knox's writings. And some come to Chesterton for essays, for his insightful reflections on the moral, economic, social, and theological controversies of the day. And they'll find that in Knox too because he dealt with the same themes, with wit, wisdom, and insight. I mean, there's a world of difference in personality between the larger-than-life journalist and lecturer Chesterton, who radiated such joy and good fellowship that even those who disagreed with him uh, quite passionately uh, did enjoy his company. There's a world of difference between this gregarious man and, the Ch and the, that was Chesterton and the, the bookish, quiet, eaten, educated, um, if you don't know what Eaton is, well, we'll talk about Eaton. But uh, Eaton educated former Oxford Don uh, uh, turned Catholic priest who's Ronald Knox. A world of difference in their personalities. 
a world of difference in their size. Um, but, uh, uh, but if you find Chesterton to be good literary company, you will uh, find Ronald Knox to be so as well. So who is this Ronald Knox? Well, um, although there is certain uh, similarity one finds in many literary Britons uh, uh, who lived at the time that both Chesterton and Knox lived in the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, it can't always, um, you know, th there are a lot of differences and similarities, but they, they can't all be put down to a similarity of education or of class because Chesterton and Knox grew up in quite different upbringings and education. Um, you know, Chesterton was a sturdy middle-class upbringing. His father was what they call an estate agent there, which we would call a realtor. Knox, his father was a bishop in the Church of England, the Lord Bishop of Birmingham. Or, no, I'm sorry, Manchester, somewhere up north. Anyway, um, and 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 uh, and and Knox went to you know went to uh, to Eton which is the most exclusive school in the world. In England, a public school is the most exclusive of private schools. I suppose being privately educated means you have a tutor. Um, but, but Eton is a, is a very exclusive school. I, once when my, when my son was, uh, my oldest son was going into high school, I thought, I wonder what it would cost to send him to Eton. Oh, you can't find the price of tuition anywhere because if you have to ask, you, you, can't, you can't afford it. <laughs> I went down and then I looked at Harrow and I looked at Winchester just, you know, to be funny and none of them. Finally got down to Malvern College, which was where C.S. Lewis went. Uh, that was his high school and uh, it was something like 30,000 pounds a year and this was back around 2000. I mean, you know, these are, okay. This is where Ronald Knox went. He went to Eton. Um, and he moved in very exalted uh, circles. Um, and then after, you know, his father was a bishop in the Church of England, uh, and consequently had a seat in the House of Lords as a bishop in the Church of England. Um, Knox, you know, gets a thorough grounding in classical languages as a boy, which was the way they were educated in the public schools in those days. Um, his Latin, to the end of his life, was as fluent as his English. Um, and then he goes on to Oxford and he excels there. You know, uh, I mean, to be sure, people like Chesterton, I mean, anyone who went to school and at that time would, would not have been wholly ignorant of Latin, but, but uh, Knox at a very early age was as fluent in Latin as in English, and, and he had a thorough command of Greek and, and, of, and of French as well. Um, Evelyn Waugh, whom we also heard about in this lecture series, was, uh, uh, wrote a biography of Ronald Knox called Ronald Knox. I mean, Monsignor Ronald Knox. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, Waugh relates the story he describes as being of rather doubtful authenticity, but it does illustrate um, Knox's upbringing and early education. When the two bo little boys, Knox and his brother Wilfred, writes uh, Waugh, when the two little boys, aged seven and six, were taken to the sea, Wilfred asked, Ronnie, do you consider that Xenophon's men said Thalata or Thalassa? <laughs> and Ronald answered, the latter. <laughs> that story may, as Waugh said, be of doubtful authenticity. But it's certainly true that, that at age 10, um, Knox addressed a farewell ode 
uh, to a, a school friend of one of his older sisters who had been visiting for a few days, a young 10-year-old Ronald was a little smitten by uh, Florence James. And so he writes to her and he you know, delivers it to her and he writes this ode that Florence Jacobi Carasoribus fortuna qualis mobilis inc abis, ic afuisti quinque soles tempus et esse breve envidetur, and so on for several stanzas. <laughs> Bribed with chocolates, writes Waugh, he reluctantly and laboriously produced an English version. <laughs> oh, Florence James, to both my sisters dear, like fickle fortune, hence you go away. You were here present during five long days, and lo, the time doth seem to be right short. <laughs> Ten-year-old boy. Um, Knox was educated at Eton, as I say, the most exclusive of all English schools, and although the English public school system has been criticized for its tendency to stifle originality, uh, Wilfred Sheed once in a, a described the English public schools, which the system kind of grew up in the beginning in the you know, mid-19th uh, century, that they came, they, uh, the English public school system were created to make sure that the likes of Shelley and Byron would never happen again. It would stifle all originality and force these young men to become, you know, uh, the, the men of their class, uh, you know, the future leaders of the, of the country. Um, you know, they would encourage respectability and conformity to the ideal of the gentleman. Um, the uh, uh, great American uh, monk and, 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 uh, and spiritual writer Thomas Merton was himself also raised in England and, and went to a public school. And he, in his book, The Seven Story Mountain, describes how uh, in a, a sermon by one of the chaplains at the school saying that, that, uh, um, that, that uh, um, the golden rule meant to be a gentleman. I mean, the purpose to raise them to be to be gentlemen in the in the English sense. Um, Knox was never discouraged from uh, excelling academically by a desire to conform, which was a big thing in these schools. I mean, part of the way the schools were functioned, you had school prefects who enforced discipline, so the students enforced discipline. I mean, it was very conformity was was really it was really forced and it was really a part of this of this education, but Knox, you know, was this brilliant bookish, you know, boy, um, and but he was he was never bullied by his contemporaries, um, and and was actually quite popular with his schoolmates. Uh, he even even though he wasn't an athlete and sport was always compulsory in these schools, um, uh, which you know as. <laughs> all of us know is often a prerequisite for popularity in school. Uh, um, uh, he was elected to something called POP, which was, as uh, Waugh describes, the self-elected Eaton Society of 24. When someone would be superannuated, they would elect replacements. Um, that was uh, in which all privilege and glory culminated. <laughs> He was elected to pop by force of his personal charm, and, and Evelyn Waugh writes, at no stage in his life did he seek friends. They sought him. His popularity and his academic success continued in a brilliant career at Oxford, and then he went on entering the Church of England, uh, was ordained an Anglican clergyman, and became chaplain at Trinity College. Uh, in Oxford, and uh, you know he enjoyed some notoriety as a writer as a young man. Incidentally, 
you know, he was, his father was very much in the broad church kind of Anglican Protestant tradition, but Knox from a very early age had Catholic sympathies. And there were these, these uh, what was called the Anglo-Catholic movement. They were within the Church of England, but they were very much theologically Catholic. And Knox at a young age felt that he was called to celibacy. And, uh, and so he, he himself went on his knees and vowed his life and, and, and his sexuality to God uh, long before he was a Catholic. Um, and uh, anyway, so he, he, he becomes an Anglican clergyman, chaplain at Trinity College, and he, he enjoyed some notoriety and plaudits for, for writing satires. He um, uh, especially he satirized the modernism that was common in the Church of England, in theological modernism. Um, Knox published a poem in the Oxford Magazine called Absolute and a Bit of Hell. Um, if, John Dryden was an English poet of, of the, you know, uh, the Restoration period, and, and Dryden had written a poem, uh, a satire of the po politics of his day called Absalom and Achitophel. And if you remember the this, this story from the Bible, Absalom was the son of David who tried to pull off a coup d'etat against his father, and Achitophel was David's advisor who went over to Absalom. And so Dryden writes this poem, Absolute and, or Absalom and Achitophel, and so Knox writes a poem called Absolute and a Bit of Hell, um, <laughs> written in the style of Dryden, and in the book in which it's published, it's even got the typography you know, from, the, from the 17th century. Um, anyway, he summarizes the weakness of the theology, such as it was, uh, of his modernist Anglican contemporaries with, uh, I just love this, this witticism. When suave politeness, tempering bigot zeal, corrects, I believe, to one does feel. <laughs> one does feel there is one God. <laughs> Knox became something of a sensation overnight in Anglo-Catholic circles. He, referred, he refers to himself sometimes as the enfant terrible of the, in the Church of England. And, and this position, which uh, was solidified in 1914 when he wrote another satire called Reunion All Around. Um, in the wake of what was called the Kikuyu Affair. Now, we Catholics, you know, this will blow right past us because it, it's not part of, of our history. But for the Anglo-Catholics, this was a watershed moment. Kikuyu in Africa, the, they, it was basically allowing uh, other Protestant ministers who were not Church of England to uh, you know, confect the sacrament in 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 a, in, a, in an Anglican service, and the Anglo Catholics had for 50, 60 years been trying to argue all along that the Anglican Church was a branch of the Church Catholic that had three branches: the Roman, the Greek, and the and the Anglican. And here, the Church of England itself is saying basically, you don't need to be ordained to confect the sacrament. And it, it was just a, it was a shocking thing for them. And, uh, and, and really, a lot of, of Anglo-Catholics were stunned with it. Our church is saying that it's not a church. You know, they're rejecting the whole basis on which we're claiming to be Catholic. Um, and, and, and so um, this, uh, you know, this, this uh, remains present practice in the Anglican communion even today. Um, and, uh, uh, 
but but that it was a scandal that just rocked the Anglo-Catholic contingent in 1914. And and the reasons was so again admitting and also admitting any baptized person to communion, irrespective of what such a person believed about the nature of the Lord's Supper, the official hierarchy of the Anglican communion was declaring the belief in the real presence or in the sacramental dignity of the liturgical meal was unnecessary. By their you know again. We have that 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 saying that you know, that that um, um, uh, about you know what we believe is how we pray is what we believe you know um, and and uh, um, um, and and this is this is uh, they had basically cut the knees out from under the Anglo-Catholic community by by taking this position. Common belief in any of the core doctrines of the Christian faith was thereby rendered irrelevant and. And Anglo-Catholics recognized this consequence, although most of their co-religionists did not. And it's still the case today. Before I became Catholic, I flirted briefly with Canterbury, and I used to play a game called Spot the Heresy, um, where I would, I would, you know, the, you could proclaim anything from an Anglican pulpit, anything at all. I used to count them. I had to stretch a point on Apollinarianism, but I think I got them all. You can't proclaim orthodoxy, but but you can't. But you know, um, and and uh, and so you know, the, the Anglo-Catholics they did not miss the significance of this. And Anglo-Catholics had, since the time of Pusey and Newman before his conversion, they had maintained that it was possible to be thoroughly Catholic and Anglican. That the Anglican communion was part of the historic Catholic Church, but for widespread disagreement on every point of doctrine to be tolerated now within those eligible to receive and confect communion in the Church of England made it increasingly clear to Anglo-Catholics that this could not be the case. Um, and a great many of them made what the official Anglicans called their submission to Rome, or kiss the Pope's toe or whatever. Uh, in popular language, uh, slang of the day, they were, they were said to have poped. Um, in the aftermath of the Kikuyu affair. Knox, however, uh, did not pope at that time, but contented himself with writing a satire called Reunion All Around, where basically, ultimately, everybody comes into reunion except the Catholics, you know. Um, uh, and, uh, and in the style of Jonathan Swift. Um, and it was, uh, as I've said, very well received, and a journalist named G.K. Chesterton praised Reunion All Around in print in a book review. And Knox was delighted more by Chesterton's praise than by the, prime, the fact that the Prime Minister himself had listened to it with pleasure when it was read to him. It won, Knox wrote, in cold print, the commendation of my earliest master and model, G.K. Chesterton. Um, well, Knox himself did ultimately pope three years later. Um, but at this time, he still maintained the Anglo-Catholic position that it was possible to be a Catholic and an Anglican. And the presence of Romanists, as they were called, within the Anglican communion could have a salutary effect of combating modernism and gradually converting England to the point where ecclesiastical reunion with Rome would be possible. Um, well, if you want an introduction really to the man Ronald Knox, there's a book that I'm going to be referring to throughout the rest of this paper that is really um, uh, the best introduction. It's its own book about his spiritual struggles. It's its own conversion story. It's called A Spiritual Aeneid. Um, now Knox, of course, being thoroughly fluent in Latin, he takes Aeneas as his model and 
freely quotes from the Latin, without translation, of course, um, from, 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 from the Aeneid, because if you know what the story of the Aeneid is, right? Aeneas is you know, the fall of Troy, and then he ultimately ends up found in Rome, founding Rome, or one of the, you know, his, and so, you know, Knox ends up in Rome, that's, you know, the idea. Um, so anyway, in this autobiography of his conversion, it shows the spiritual struggles that Knox had during those three years, and they were dark days for him as he became more and more intellectually convinced of the claims of the Catholic Church and the weakness of his own position as an Anglo-Catholic. And this was rendered difficult not only by the fact that his English, the Church of England is the Church of England. And then his father's a bishop. And he's an Oxford Don. That's a pretty good gig. You know, uh, and, and he's gonna lose that. I had a friend of mine, actually, who was a, a, a law school classmate of mine who was a, 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 an Episcopalian a minister, and he was offered uh, Dean of Divinity at Modeling College, Oxford. And was, he, his wife made him turn it down, and then she divorced him. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a good gig, you know, <laughs> to, to be in Oxford and get paid, you know, to be there. Um, and all of this he'd lose. All of it he would lose. Now, he was a single man, so he didn't have some of the problems that a lot of them did. Uh, you know, uh, but but still, um, but he oh, but most of the problem was intellectual, because he, he confided to a friend in 1915, I never celebrate, meaning you know say the the the, the liturgy, I never celebrate without wondering whether anything's happening. He wrote at this time, I have to set my teeth in order to consecrate and make my thanksgiving after communion or confession with a mental reservation simply because I see so clearly that if the Roman view should be the right one, our orders and still more our jurisdiction become matters of such uncertainty that the probabilities of there being anything in them are hardly worth considering. Well, after three years of agonizing mentally and spiritually and after making and remaking lists of pros and cons, Lists that range from serious considerations regarding his, his relations with his father, who is the Anglican Bishop of Manchester, and who actually cut him out of his will uh, when, when Knox became a, a Catholic. Um, to more frivolous considerations, like your fellow priests won't be married, but, but they'll be much more vulgar. <laughs> Knox finally, on one of his lists, then wrote a line across it, at the end of the list, and he wrote, Vade retro satanas, get behind me, Satan. At the end of his list, and finally made the last step and was received into the Catholic Church. So, we're talking about converts, so let's talk about his conversion. That leads up to his conversion, and maybe a bit about, you know, we, we talked about how, uh, for, for a few weeks ago, about how Chesterton talks about the, the three stages on the way to conversion. And, uh, and Knox, you know, writes his spiritual Aeneid. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, and Chesterton talked about, you know, the, you're running, you're, you're being fair to the Catholic Church, and then you're uh, being excited by what you're learning. And then the third stage is running away. Um, well, Knox, uh, you know, when he, for him, it was not quite this, I mean, there was that intellectual struggle going on in him. But for him, it came, the moment came with blazing clarity. Um, 
he uh, writes about a sudden realization he had had while reading a standard Protestant history of the papacy. And he says, I cannot remember it well enough to quote it, but the gist of it is this. He comments upon the extraordinary precision with which time after time, the bishops of Rome managed to foresee which side the church would eventually take in a controversy and plumped for it beforehand. The church fixes the date of Easter. The church decides that heretics need not be rebaptized. The church decides that the incarnate combines two natures in one person. But each time Rome, like Lancashire, he says, thinks today what the world will think tomorrow. This uncanny capacity for taking the pulse of the church is ascribed by Millman, the author of this book, um, partly to their geographically central position and so on. And then it occurred to me, says Knox, that there was another explanation. <laughs> I could have laughed out loud, he says. By, as an aside, my, my oldest sister uh, is theologically trained as Protestant. We were raised evangelicals, and she had a similar thing when she was first reading about the Catholic faith. This can't be right. This can't be right. She was reading the church fathers. The church fathers are Catholic on all these points, you know. And then she went to one of her seminary textbooks and pulled it down and found this passage that just leapt out at her. It said that the early church fathers were deficient in their understanding of salvation by faith alone. Every convert, you know, has felt that period of, you know, delight of discovery, but then comes the running away. And for Knox, that agonizing in spirit was the, uh, that was his final phase of conversion lasted, as I said, the better part of, of three years. But of course, there is that fourth stage of conversion, that of acquiescence. And for some, it's a great joy. And for some, it's a matter of just being tired and beaten down. And the joy comes later. Um, there was another priest convert that I, I wanted to do instead of Knox. I mean, it was really a toss-up. I could have done either of them. And that's Robert Hugh Benson, who uh, was a little bit earlier than Knox. Um, and uh, he was, his father was actually Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and he became a Catholic and wrote a ton of wonderful hunted priest potboiler novels. Um, anyway, uh, um, he, Benson described his sensations as being the, like those of a man in a fairy story who after wandering all night in a city of enchantment turns after sunrise to look back upon it and finds to his astonishment that the buildings are no longer there. They have gone up like wraiths and mist under the light of the risen day. And Chesterton talks about, you know, everybody outside sees you go through a door and they think you've gone into a prison house, but you've really gone out into the light of day. And Benson would write about how, you know, he couldn't look, he'd look back and, you know, people, some years after his conversion, asked him to write, you know, a, from both sides because he lived both sides. And he says, I can't even see the other side anymore. So we've digressed, digressed for, for quite a long time on all these different aspects of conversion. I'm a convert myself, so that interests me. Um, but Knox, uh, you know, as I say, left his own story of his own conversion as spiritual Aeneid, and that's as good a place as any, I think, to make his literary acquaintance, since I'm doing a literary introduction to my friend in the absence of Chesterton. Um, to show, but this, the spiritual need is a great way, introduction to him, but it's also by reference to all the very different types of books that Knox wrote. 
Um, you know, those of us who have discovered Chesterton or whoever, you know, we, we, we find those literary interests are so different and that they lead into other books. And you can add the same approach to Ronald Knox. If you're interested in detective stories, read his detective fiction. If you're interested in, in, in his sermons and their beautifully wonderful books of, 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 of spiritual uh, uh, reading, short bits, um, you know, there are volumes of them, little, uh, little books, a lot of them in print. Um, you'll find, you know, um, you read one thing and then you and then you, you pull into another into another. So, uh, you know, those of you who are devotees of detective fiction, in the 1930s, really is when detective fiction really gets its rules and gets its footing. There were detective stories before then, of course, Sherlock Holmes, you know, Conan Doyle, and, and others, um, and uh, you know, Wilkie Collins, uh, uh, you know, the Moonstone, and so forth. But the rules for writing what we know as our detective novels really don't come around until the 1930s, and Knox has a place in that. A group of, of, of detective story writers, including Chesterton, Dorothy Sayers, who created Lord Peter Whimsey, um, Agatha Christie, Edmund Clarehue Bentley, who was a, a schoolmate of Chesterton's and also wrote three of the best detective stories and then just quit, you know, because uh, he had other things to write. Um, uh, a number of them formed a society they called the Detection Club. And one of the things they were, that got them thinking about this was they liked reading each other's books and they, they, they wanted rules, you know, and, and so they set about to set certain rules for writers of detective fiction. Most notably, they're all pointed basically to the idea that the writer should play fair with the reader. Don't introduce, you know, the clinching clue in the last chapter. Don't introduce the murderer in the last chapter and you've never met the person before and it's a complete, you know, drops from the sky, you know, that's not playing fair. The ideal should be, that you can go back, that when you read, they've got the final chapter when Poirot you know, uh, tells you who did it, you should be, I should have seen that. And then you can go back and find all the clues along the way. So that was basically the rules. Uh, Knox, I didn't bring them with me, but he wrote the, uh, the Ten Commandments for Detective Fiction. Some of them are kind of funny, you know, no more than one secret room uh, that has to be shown beforehand. And I guess he was, one of the rules, you know, unless you read books, you know, the Pulp Fiction of the Day, you wouldn't get, why would he have that? No more, no, no, uh, no Chinese characters. But it was because, you know, it was always some little known Asiatic poison, you know, that, that is completely undetectable, but, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's got to, you got to play fair with the reader was the idea. <coughs> so, um, uh, and among the 26 founding members of this club, you know, again, was Ronald Knox. And the, and the members used to amuse themselves by playing a game. It was a round-robin game where one of them would start a story and the others had to carry it forward. And they actually, uh, for charity, did several books that way, where one of them would write a chapter and then send it on to the next. And then that person would have to write a chapter and continue the story forward. And then as the story progressed, they had to put in a sealed envelope what the clues were, who they, who, you know, where, where they pointed, what the solution was. So that, and in the early chapters are all kind of, you know, the, the, the solutions they had proposed were wildly divergent. Um, but by the end, of course, it narrows down pretty closely in some of them. And probably the most famous of them, and you'll see it, you can find it in used bookstores. I've got, I've got three copies of it, called The Floating Admiral. 
and each of them had written a chapter to it. Knox wrote the chapter called uh, uh, The 39 Articles of Doubt. <laughs> Again, it's an Catholic, uh, Anglo-Catholic joke because the, uh, uh, the official teaching or you know, 39 Articles of Faith of the Church of England and so 39 Articles of Doubt as the detective sits down and sets out all the clues that he's got at that point. So that's Knox's chapter. Um, and uh, anyway, they, they, uh, they wrote, uh, I think there were, um, well, I've got like three or four of, of, their, of, their, uh, um, of their books. Uh, if you're interested in locked room or miracle crime, miracle crime puzzles, um, several of Knox's uh, mystery novels fall into this category, including The Di Viaduct Murder, The Three Taps, um, The Footsteps at the Lock. Um, I mentioned uh, um, uh, Edmund Clara Hugh Bentley as uh, one of the founding members of the Detection Club. Have you ever heard of the poem, a form of verse called the Clarahue? Clarahue is a humorous uh, four-line poem style that, uh, that Bentley had made up in, in school, and he and Chesterton used to write them, uh, and uh, just to amuse themselves, called Biography for Beginners. Um, and, and the idea is that the first line has to, it has to be broadly biographical. The first line has to mention the person's name in it. Um, it rhymes A-A-B-B, -B, so the first two lines rhyme, and the last two lines rhyme, and there has to be a studied lack of meter. Um, and so I wrote one about Knox, because he wrote these six murder mysteries, and then his bishop told him, um, you're, you know, a popular uh, theolog theological writer and spiritual writer probably shouldn't be writing these juicy murder mysteries. Um, and so my Clara Hugh on, on, on Ronald Knox was, Monsignor Ronald A. Knox wrote mysteries about viaducts, silos, and locks, but such subjects that his superiors were incompatible with his surplus and chasuble. <laughs> So, but he also wrote other novels, um, and one of them, you know, if you, I'm, Anthony Trollope, you know, the, the, the Barchester novels, um, Knox loved them so much, read them over and over again, he wrote a seventh one uh, called A Barchester Pilgrimage. Um, uh, he wrote, uh, again, like keeping with his, with his essays and his, his satirical essays in the style of, of, of Trollope. Um, he, um, he also wrote a delightful novel called um, Let Dawn's Delight that it's really hard to find, but oh, is it a good book. Um, it's set in a, in a fictional college in Oxford called St. Simon Magus um, <laughs> College. And, uh, and a fellow falls asleep in the senior common room while his, he's a visitor and, and, and his, uh, the professor who's his friend and has given him dinner at the college goes off to take a telephone call. He falls asleep and he wakes up and it's the 18, or 1580s. And there's conversation going on between the older dons and the younger dons on the eve of the, of the Spanish Armada. And then the next chapter is 50 years later, and now the young hot-headed dons are now the old fogies, and there's new hot-headed dons, and every 50 years. So you've got, you know, everything is, you know, uh, on the eve of the Spanish Armada, and the eve of the, you know, just the beginnings of the trouble between uh, uh, Charles I and Parliament, and then on the eve of, of the Glorious Revolution, and so forth, every 50 years. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, Let Dons Delight. 
He also, though, wrote uh, works of apologetics, so they're clear, witty, insightful explanations of Christian faith. And one of the best short introductions to the Catholic faith, and it's in print, is called The Belief of Catholics by Ronald Knox. Um, he also wrote many accessible books on faith, drawn in most part from his sermons, and, and he was also a much-in-demand retreat master. Um, there's a, a book for retreat for lay people that would be a delight to read during Lent next year. <laughs> and for you priests and soon-to-be priests, uh, two books, A Priestly Life and A Retreat for Priests, full of wonderful uh, wisdom. Um, you know, they're week-long retreats, so imagine two, two sessions a day kind of thing, you know, so it's you know, several chapters uh, long, uh, delightful books. And he wrote for, for kids. He, uh, he would give a, um, a, a series of homilies at a girls' school during World War II. And so he wrote uh, and then took those homilies and made them into books called The Mass in Slow Motion and The Creed in Slow Motion, breaking it down line by line, bit by bit. Delightful books to read. That was actually my first introduction to the extraordinary form, was reading his description of the Mass and the Mass in Slow Motion. But two books in particular stand as Knox's own masterpieces. The first is a book called Enthusiasm, which is very different from the others. A big com, you know, compendium of, uh, of, of history of one might call revivalism within Christianity. And he starts it from the earliest centuries with the heretics, the Montanists and Donatists uh, in the early days of the church, but with special emphasis also on movements both within the Catholic Church and outside of the Catholic Church like the Port Royal Jansenists or Madame Guion and the Quietists among the Catholic world and, of course, Wesleyans, Quakers, and other Protestant, uh, and others in, in the Protestant countries. And he traces the history of their ideas, their strengths and failings, and draws charitable but fair portraits um, of their founders and leaders. And this is, it's really an important uh, book and indispensable, I think, in understand, uh, to understanding evangelicalism. Uh, the tradition in which I was raised, um, and Christian fundamentalism as well, as well as the, you know, the charismatic groups today, both within the Catholic Church and, and outside, uh, who are the enthusiast spiritual successors. Um, and he writes, again, with very fair in his assessment of them. He incidentally, the only one I've ever seen who comes to this conclusion, but he would know it from the inside, he thinks that Wesley had Roman difficulties and went the other direction that Wesley himself was exploring the Catholic faith and then went the opposite way. Um, other, the other work, of course, is Knox's own translation of the Bible. The man translated the Bible by himself. Um, and uh, he, um, Knox translated from the Latin Vulgate uh, because his, his Latin was so good, and, and this was before Divino Fonte Spiritus, so uh, translate, Catholic translations had to be from the Vulgate. But uh, his Greek also was almost as good as his Latin, and he didn't have any Hebrew, so when he took on the, the commission to translate the Bible, he, he learned Hebrew. Um, <laughs> and, and so he would refer to the original, in, in, although he's translating from the Latin, he would make reference, especially in his footnotes, to the original. Knox has the amazing ability to capture ambiguity. His command of English is so powerful that where the Greek text is ambiguous, 
so is his English. He captures what the Greek text is saying. It's, it's really a remarkable skill that he has. Um, and, and, and he wrote an exquisite three-volume uh, commentary on the New Testament, which is well worth getting if you can, I mean, if you could find it. I found a copy of it that was uh, discarded by a school in the Catholic tradition within uh, this metropolitan area. Um, and uh, you know where the where the uh, the pocket thing is in the old library books, where all the young people don't know about this stuff, where you have cards, you know, um, the, the the pocket part, above there, penciled in in somebody's handwriting, was discarded old thought. <laughs> oh, he's so good, and you know, oh. It's just very insightful uh, a commentary. But he was also a skilled translator in French, as well as Latin. He translated um, uh, um, the uh, uh, autobiography of Teresa of Lisieux. The autobiography, the story of a soul that we're so familiar with, is heavily edited by Mother Superior to talk about how wonderful Mother Superior was in guiding young Therese. Um, Knox translated from her actual manuscript, and so it's much longer, and, and uh, you can find that uh, in news bookstores. I've, 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 it's really quite a good read. He translated late in life his last work. He died before it was finished, and so, but he had left instructions for uh, Michael Oakley to finish it, a translation of The Imitation of Christ, a book that he read all the time. Uh, from, from uh, um, Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ. It's a beautiful translation. But I want to you know, close this out with, from his Bible, because his Bible really is exquisite. Um, as I say, uh, it holds a particular central place in my own affections, and I think it should do in yours as well. Um, he captures the meaning of the sacred text in beautiful English. Uh, he's such a stylist. You know, where so many of our translations may be very accurate, but they're done by committee and they sound like it. And there's slight idiosyncrasy if a single person is doing the translation, but his style, his skill is so good. And you know, we do that with Homer. I mean, if we're reading Homer, we're getting a particular translation. Nobody has a committee translating Homer or Virgil, you know? So, but we do that with the Bible, but Knox's translation is really quite beautiful. Um, and, uh, uh, but he goes further. Again, I mentioned the ambiguity, which he, with, with, if, it's, uh, if there's an ambiguity in the Vulgate or in the Greek or Hebrew, he, he captures the ambiguity in English. And, and where the psalmist wrote in acrostics, that was a very common feature in Hebrew poetry, was a lot of the psalms, you'll notice, have 22, line, or 22 verses. And that's because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so the first verse begins with Aleph, and the second verse begins with Beth, and the third verse begins with Gimel, and so forth. And there are a lot of psalms like that. Probably the most famous one is, is the big long one, 119 or 118 in the Vulgate, that is 22 psalms, really, of eight verses each, so that the first eight all begin with Aleph, and the second verse you know, would all begin with Beth, and so forth. So that's a common feature in Hebrew poetry. Well, so when Knox is translating those psalms, what does he do? He translates them as acrostics in English. Um, and, uh, and there's also uh, his, his he, did, he left us very little by way of poetry. Chesterton wrote reams of poetry, still finding it. 
Knox wrote left us very little by way of poetry except his translation of the Psalms. But um, his, his Psalms remind one, I think, especially of the alliteration and indeed the sprung meter of, of that other famous um, priest, poet, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was unknown in his lifetime, but was very influential in the early 20th century as a poet. Um, and Knox greatly admired Hopkins. So I'm going to quote, by way of you know, wrapping this up, one of uh, Knox's psalms. And when I've given this talk in the past, I've, I've, I've read you know, the 23rd or 22nd psalm in the Vulgate. Um, but uh, I think a better one tonight is the 93rd psalm or 92nd psalm in the, in the Vulgate. Um, because it really gives a sense of the poetry of, the, of this man. The Lord reigns as king robed in majesty. Royalty the Lord has for robe and girdle. He it was that founded the solid earth to abide immovable. Firm stood thy throne ere ever the world began. From all eternity thou art loud the rivers echo, Lord loud the rivers echo, crashing down in flood, magnificent the roar of eddying waters, magnificent the seas rage, magnificent above these the Lord reigns in heaven. How faithful, Lord, are thy promises, holy is thy house, and must needs be holy until the end of time. I mean, when you compare that, how very different from the pedestrian translations that we so often read, both Catholic and Protestant, that proliferate today. I, I, could, I could go on and on, but I won't. <laughs> um, on, on this you know, effusion of praise for the, the work of, of this, this great man. Um, I've gone on long enough. I, I, I thank you for the opportunity to introduce you on perhaps Chesterton's behalf um, to his friend, Monsignor Ronald Knox. Um, I have been profoundly affected by making his literary acquaintance, and I have no doubt that you will be too. So make his acquaintance without delay. Thank you. And now I suppose we'll take questions. Ah. So the, the translation was intended for use in, uh, in England. Uh, did it ever achieve its It did for a brief period. Um, because, like I say, it was translated and then Divino Flante Spiritu came out of the, uh, the encyclical of Pius XII and now translations can be done from the original languages rather than simply the Vulgate, and it got you know, set aside. Um, it, it did, it was for a long time, especially the Book of Wisdom was, found its way in the, in the uh, breviary among, uh, um, I think it was among secular clergy in, in, uh, in England, so some parts of it were in there. While, you know, while the uh, new translations were being worked through. Um, but yeah, it's sadly neglected now. Um, but it's, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it really is a gorgeous translation. Uh, you, you said that he translated from the Vulgate, but also referred to the Greek. 
Well, the idea, it had to be a translation of the Vulgate, but obviously you can refer to the, to the other texts. So he would explain in footnotes that the Vulgate differed from the best Greek manuscripts. Um, often, I mean, the differences are very slight, uh, you know, between, the, between the, the Vulgate. And sometimes the Vulgate actually preserves a better text than, than some, of the, some of the received Greek manuscripts. Um, you know, uh, so uh, in fact, I, I find frequently as I'm reading a translation, one of the modern translations, you know, like the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, or whatever, you'll see a footnote will say, correction, VG. Hebrew says this, you know, because the, 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 the translators, you know, had come to the conclusion that the Hebrew text had, had been corrupted in some way and that the Vulgate actually, uh, in that particular instance, would have would have uh, preserved a better reading. So, um, so he was, you know, but it just a, it was a translation from the Vulgate. But he could refer to those other texts. Yeah. Um, he also has a wonderful little book, and I know that we, a lot of us clergy, use it up during during the, the Holy Week liturgies, um, because you know the the uh, um, a lot of things haven't changed. Um, that he did a. a, a, a collected a volume of the Holy Week liturgies so you could have it all in a nice little, little volume that you can have up there with you when, when, uh, when Mark Pilon is chanting the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Passion. <laughs> so, all right. Yes? I was wondering how his conversions affected his family relationships, if his father was alive and converted, and his academic relations at Oxford. I love watching the inspiring stories on the journey home with Marcus Roy, but often the story involves the courage of the convert in the face of the loss of important relationships or at least changes. He, it, it certainly um, put a big strain on his relationship with his father. Um, and his father cut him out of his will. Um, uh, and forbade him to come to Manchester and minister in Manchester as a Catholic priest because that was his father's diocese in the Church of England. And Knox respected him and, 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 and stayed out of Manchester um, during his father's life. Um, Knox's mother was a little more uh, uh, you know, forgiving. Um, you know, he didn't have a wife and children, so he didn't have to worry about that. He did lose his position at Oxford because he was an Anglican chaplain. You can't be an Anglican. The Anglican church will tolerate an awful lot, but they won't tolerate a Catholic uh, chaplain. Um, you could not believe in God, but you can't be a papist and be an Anglican chaplain. Um, so he had to give that up. But then, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, Catholic uh, bishop uh, um, of the area that included Oxford made him, gave him the Catholic chaplaincy at Oxford. Uh, so he, 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 was, he was able to live in Oxford for another, I think it was 20 years, so. Okay. All right, yeah, dates. Um, he was born in 1888, uh, and he uh, died in 1957. Um, 
And uh, so, I mean, within living memory, um, he, uh, not my living memory, but some of yours. Um, and uh, uh, he became a, a Catholic in 1917 and uh, was ordained a Catholic priest in 1918. Um, so, uh, um, and he, he began translating the, the Vulgate and, you know, translating the, the Bible in 1936. So, um, oh, one story that I didn't mention. You'll find this funny if you like you know, the, 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 uh, the, the War of the Worlds. Remember that big broadcast that, that just made Orson Welles? Knox beat him to it sometime before then. In 1926, uh, he had a broadcast, satirical broadcast, simulating a live report of a revolution sweeping across London called Broadcasting from the Barricades. Uh, in addition to live reports of several people, including a government minister being lynched, his uh, broadcast mixed supposed band music from the Savoy Hotel with the hotel's purported destruction by trench mortars. <laughs> and the Houses of Parliament and the clock tower were said to have been flattened. And anyway, this carried on. And, and uh, it, there was panic in the country. <laughs> and, and, and to make matters worse, a snowstorm hit London and the newspapers couldn't go out the next day. And so everyone's like, oh no, there's no news coming because London's in complete uproar. And it was a radio broadcast. And, and, and Orson Welles himself later on, you know, after doing the War of the Worlds in 1938, so it's 12 years later, he did, uh, in, an, in, an, uh, in an interview, um, he, he said that the broadcast gave him the idea of the, the War of the Worlds. So. <laughs> yeah. This series is supposed to be about English conference. No, he was English. Uh, I mean, he was, he was born in Leicester, and, and uh, you know, I mean, he, he lived his life in England. He was educated at Eton. I don't think he, he didn't identify himself as, as a Scot in any way. Um, there's a little bit less of that nationalism back then, you know, um, uh, within within the United Kingdom. So, but no, he was he was a he, he was thoroughgoing Englishman. But, but the other Knox, John Knox, did he say anything? Um, no, not really. No, he didn't because uh, Knox didn't really. The other John Knox didn't really figure in uh, in his enthusiasm, which would have been the book that he would have written about because it was a different. Uh, wasn't all that much enthusiastic about Scottish Presbyterianism, I suppose, in the in the sense that he meant of the you know the heightened uh, uh, you know spiritual uh, uh, in an emotional sense. Um, you know, the, I mean, the joke about Calvinism is that uh, you know Calvinist architecture. You know, the ideal of Calvinist architecture is four bare walls and a sermon. Um, and 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 I, so I don't. You didn't quite. But that would have been the book in which something like Knox would have. Ron, uh, John Knox would have been covered, but he wouldn't have fit into that that theme. So uh, yeah, we'll take uh, one one more. How about that? Mm. Oh, I could, but we're getting kind of late in the hour. Um, uh, I was on a journey home a few years ago, so you can look at that. I, I was, my parents were Protestant missionaries in Japan. And uh, for a long time, I, I can look back and I can see early warning signs, you know, of, of, of things that, that ultimately uh, led to it. But the big thing was, 
Um, I was in college. Uh, I'd gone through the, you know, inevitable, you kind of look back on it now, it's kind of pathetic, but the inevitable, you know, break up with the high school girlfriend and oh, life is miserable, you know, and 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 looking into the, the, the blackness and going into a real pit of despair and realizing I didn't want to go there. And um, about that time, a friend of mine, uh, I was going to Bethel College up in Arden Hills, uh, you know, good Baptist school, and a friend of mine there was Catholic, and so we were talking about things, and he, uh, you know, the idea, I knew that I needed a conversion. I needed penance. I needed that. And the idea of liturgical seasons is completely foreign to evangelical. You have Christmas Day and Easter Day, but nothing else. Um, and the idea of Lent, a season set aside for penance and reflection, that was exactly what I needed at that time. So I resolved to keep a holy Lent, and, and, uh, and then my friend Tom said, why don't we go to the cathedral for Ash Wednesday? It's like, and immediately all this, you know, my Protestant hackles go up, you know, this is going to be going into the den of iniquity or whatever. I don't know, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, and, uh, but I thought, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I went in and I received, you know, nobody had ever really probably said it as baldly, but I was kind of raised with the notion at least that, you know, there was three centuries of Christianity and then along comes Constantine and then there's this big gap and then there's Martin Luther. Um, and, uh, and I'm walking into the cathedral and I'm thinking, no, there's no gap. There's a continuity. And then receiving the ashes, and I'm not one to hear voices, but uh, as, as, as if an audible voice had said, um, this is the way, walk in it. The quote from Isaiah. And I, I never really looked back after that. I, I, I took a course of inquiry at Nativity Parish that summer. Uh, I took a good four or five years before I became Catholic. Part of it was to convince my parents that it wasn't a youthful indiscretion. Um, but part of it was also I didn't, didn't want to be a Protestant wannabe kind of Catholic. If I was going to be a Catholic, I was going to be a Catholic. And so I wanted to be convinced on every matter. Part of it also was that comfortableness of sitting on the fence. Um, but uh, so that's kind of in, the, in short strokes what, uh, what my story is. I was received at the church uh, Easter Vigil of 1989. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that. Yeah. Okay.